0: you would please take out your Bibles, open them up to the book of Daniel where we resume our study this morning, Daniel chapter 8. If you're paying attention to the back of the bullet from where you see the scripture reference listed that you will notice that it's a little different. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4 and then 15 to 20. I'm doing it this way so that we can look at the vision and the interpretation so that it kind of flows together. It's a little bit, be a little bit more cohesive that way. But we find ourselves here in Daniel chapter 8, we have had the first vision of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel went through. It was the first year of the, rain, the first reigning year of Belshazzar and Daniel saw the four beasts. And now we're getting into another vision where it's another vision of beasts that Daniel has. And We're still in what would be considered the apocalyptic section of Daniel where he's using imagery, God is using vision and imagery to communicate truth. That's exactly the goal of apocalyptic literature. It uses vivid images to communicate truth in ways that people would grab onto and understand. And the beauty of this type of literature is it stays consistent. It stays contemporary is what I should say. It stays contemporary so that as we're reading the vision of Daniel that he had in about 550 B.C., we understand what a ram is and we understand what a ram with horns are and how this could in fact be a symbol of power and strength and this mighty creature that can do great damage. And so that's one of the beauties of when, we, when you look at the book of Revelation and, and you read of a dragon in the sky, well, what is that meant to invoke in us? We all understand what a dragon is. We've seen these mythical creatures. We understand that they can breathe fire. They can deceive the nations. They have magical power. And so when we see that imagery, what we're supposed to look at it and say, this is bad. This is bad. This, this, whatever this creature is doing, he's up to no good. He's up to evil. And so these images are meant to invoke certain uh, responses in us to see this ram that we're going to read about here in just a minute and, and the, the damage he can do. It's meant to make, it's meant to be visceral. We're, we're supposed to react to it like, whoa, this seems really bad. And that's exactly what Daniel is meant to do. So he's still giving us these visions, trying to tell us, as we've talked about, yes, he is in some senses uh, telling us the human history part. We can't get away from these visions of Daniel and not grab onto the fact that Daniel saw history, human history, with a very vivid clarity, he, uh, with a very, he was lucidly. So he understands, but he understands what's happening in the world and what's coming down the pipe. but also much larger than that, so much which, much more important than that is he's looking at God's intervention into human history. And see, that's what you and I need to grab onto. Yeah, let's let's examine these images, let's examine these visions, let's see what they're talking about. But really, the lifeline in this is not understanding who's Persia and who's Greece. It's understanding that God is sovereign over it and that God has not abandoned his people in the midst of their suffering. That's where we that's what we want to cling to, because that's what we need most. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to Daniel chapter 8. We're looking at, as I said, verses 1 to 4, and then I'll skip down and read verses 15 to 20. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the providence of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. When I Daniel had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, "Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end." And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, "Behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And as for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me a moment. Father, your word is before us, and it's complex. And yet you are Lord over the word. And so I pray now that as your word is opened, as we have read that you would work its truth deeply into our hearts, that we not just congregate to hear some good ideas, but we congregate to listen to the truth of the living God. Transform us, we pray through Christ. Amen. You might not have heard of this man. this man by the name of Ralph Barton. I suspect you probably haven't heard of him because he, after his death, he really just kind of lost any sort of notoriety. Ralph Barton was an American cartoonist From the early 20th century. He was born in the late 19th century. He was an American cartoonist in the early 20th century. He was really best known for his cartoons and caricatures of actors and celebrities. Well, he was successful. He he had a good run of it. But in 1931, Ralph Barton committed suicide. And he left a pretty extensive suicide note, which I won't read the whole thing, but one line in there was actually really interesting to me. He wrote in his note, I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. I'm fed up with inventing devices for filling up 24 hours of the day. Had, he was successful. Early in his career, he was successful. He had a lot of personal heartache. The, the woman that he called the love of his life, they divorced, and he never really recovered from that. But he was a man who despaired. He despaired to the point of taking it in his own life. But beloved, why? Why? I mean, you can read between the lines when he when he says that, you know what he's telling you? You know what he's telling the world? I feel like I have no purpose. I've nothing really to live for. Everything I live for, I have to invent to make my life interesting. We are reading the line of a man who said in his death letter, I have no purpose. We would when we look at purpose lessness. We need to understand that it's it's a real thing, and people who feel a lack of purpose do despair. When we have no purpose, we despair. He was successful, but his personal life was in shambles. He suffered what is a very common problem in our world with the deep lack of purpose. You know, you and I, you may say, well, I'm thankful to have purpose, but I wish my life was a little less painful, and I do too. But as we walk through pain and hardship, beloved of God, it is no small thing for us to to take time to thank God that we serve a God of purpose who has given us purpose, and his purpose for us is to see us through every end in our life to bring us to him, to bring us home with Jesus. So when we think about our lives before the creator of the world. We have a purposeful creator who gives his people purpose so that we don't have to succumb to despair like the Ralph Bartons of the world. Well, as we transition here from Daniel 7 to Daniel 8, uh, we are looking at what's Daniel's second vision in this book. He received this vision from the Lord. Uh, he, he makes that clear right there in verse 1. We'll get there in just a minute. This vision is different, right? It's different. We're, we're looking at different animals. It's got a different... Uh, foci in here, but really thematically it's the same. It's very similar to Daniel 7. When we think about these visions, the whole goal of these visions is to say, yes, life is hard, God is in control. This is, we're going to see this again. Yes, life is hard, and God is in control. And don't ever let that become trite. And I'm probably speaking more to myself here. When we think about saying things like, yes, life is hard, but God is in control, I mean, they, that can sometimes feel like a cheap platitude. Like, well, yeah, well, we're just trying to say the right thing. But, beloved, let me challenge you as I'm challenging myself right now to say, yes, life is hard, but God is in control. And that's not cheap. That's not easy believism. That's not something that doesn't matter much that means everything. That means everything. That means the pain that we walk through is not senseless. It's not worthless. It's not arbitrary. It's not a shock or a surprise to God. He's in control even in our pain. And that's an encouraging thought, one that we have to cling to, because there is pain in this room, I understand. And God is in control in the very depths of our pain. We're seeing here something we've seen before in Daniel 8, the rise and fall of kingdoms. And we see God's role through human history. That's exactly what we saw in Daniel 7. So what is Daniel doing? He's not trying to give us a novel idea. He's not trying to present something new and novel to, to catch our attention. No, he is simply banging the drum of God's sovereignty and goodness and faithfulness and security in the midst of hard times. Can you ever tire of hearing that message? Those of you who walk through hard times and are walking through them now, can you ever tire of hearing the message that God is with you in that moment, even when you don't feel like it, even when it seems like he's very distant? He does not abandon his people. And that's one thing Daniel is doing. Why? Why is he doing that now? Because when people are walking through hardship and persecution, we need to be reminded that God is not absent that God has not vacated, that God has not abandoned, that he's still reigning, he's still right where he always is, and he's drawing us deeper into fellowship with him. So we need this message just like they needed it. What is Daniel doing? He, he, he's, he's telling us this so he can cultivate hope and peace in himself and in the world as he watches and as he watched and as we watch the world system tyrannize people. The world system is a tyranny. It is a tyranny. And it wants to tyrannize God's people because it hates the truth of God. It wants to tyrannize everybody because it wants to control. Because it wants to consume. And Daniel is saying, you, you, you'll watch it happen. Beloved of God, we'll watch it happen. So what is, it, what, is our, what is our response in those moments going to be? What is our hope going to be? We're either going to despair like Ralph Barton and say, I'm going to end it, or maybe not go that far, or we're going to say, hey, yeah, this is hard, but I have hope, and that's where we have to live. That's the place where God has called us to live, is in that place of hope. Daniel, you know what he's doing? He's saying, in your tears, be joyful. Through your tears, through your grief, be joyful. Have joy. Not because life is easy, but because God is good and he is the king. If we think of man's chief end as to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, and it is, that is our chief end. Well, we could say that God's chief end, God's purpose, purpose is to save his people and bring them to himself through Christ. Of course, that's a very simplistic way of looking at God. God is a complex being, and there's a lot more we could say. But God's chief end in in, in relationship with his people is to bring us to himself. And that is why he sent Jesus. That is why in Genesis 3, he said, he gave the message that one is coming, the, the seed of the woman, and he will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Right then and there, God was telling us, my purpose is to draw you back to myself, and so we've got this, this rich message littered throughout Scripture. Jesus is the example of what we can expect from God. Jesus came as the express image of God, Paul says, in Colossians. He, Jesus said of himself in the Gospels, I and the Father are one. So he comes as God Emmanuel or God in the flesh, God with us. And so when we look at the ministry and life of Jesus, one thing we, we take away from that is we say, that is how God wants to interact with his people. God is a loving God, a saving God, a redemptive God, a sacrificial God, that his goal is to have us with him, not to leave us twisting in the wind, not to tell us to do all these things and then maybe at the end of it he'll let us into heaven like Allah does with Muslim people. See, God gives us a guarantee in Christ. When we look at Christ, we're seeing the Father's love for us. By the way, that Jesus came to the world. One of the most well-known verses that we've all probably memorized at one point or another, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you how you should translate that, that verse. That, that henna clause there, it's a Greek word. God loved the world in this way, colon, he gave his son. So we're, we're being told how God loved us in that verse. In John 3.16, it's not that he loves us so much, which he does, but we're being told how he loved us. How did did he love us, John? How did God love us? He sent his only son into the world to redeem the perishing so that they might have eternal life. In Daniel, this is true. In John's gospel, that's true. In the book of Revelation, it's true that God is, is working to save his people. We look at Jesus, we think he blesses and encourages us, right, through the word. He saves and preserves us. You know what else he does? He leads us into the wilderness. Do you remember when Jesus is gone to temptation? He's going to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Do you remember who it says led him out there? The Spirit. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness. Do you remember that in Job, we heard a fine message from George a few weeks ago, and Job It was God who said, have you considered my servant Job? And we look, those are hard things to read, right? Those are hard things to read. But we need to understand what is the overarching message in that? Well, yeah, God is in control. But even when we walk out into the wilderness and the pathway is hard, God is with us. He's leading us there. He's leading us to a good end. And that's what's so vital for us to understand. In all things, God is with us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to lead us to good ends. Those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I I want for us to see, and it's this, that history and hardship bring about the good ends of God. That history and hardship bring about the good ends of God. As we're looking at this, of course, with regards to History, especially from the context or from the perspective of Daniel, Daniel, this is a vision to him. He's seeing this all for the first time. We have the we have the advantage of knowing how human history played out and knowing that he was right. He predicted it very accurately. But so there's a certain mystery. You can appreciate as Daniel's looking at this, he needs help. There's a mystery to the history that's being unfolded here, and so Daniel, as he as as he sees the vision. He says, "When I'd seen the vision in verse 15, I sought to understand it." He wants to know what's going on. Why? Well, how are we going to know how to live without understanding? Why do we need God's revelation in our lives? The the, the created order can tell us that God is and that He exists, but we need the special revelation of God to tell us how to live. And so Daniel wants understanding to know how do I respond to this? When we look, when we think about this, we need to understand that the slow march of time continues to accomplish the will of God the slow march of time and as i get older it seems to be marching a lot faster but the slow march of time continues to accomplish the will of God it should not be lost on us that in matthew chapter 10 verse 29 when jesus is teaching he says are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of the father wow god is interested in the flight path of a sparrow you better believe that he's involved in the details of human history and human history is bringing to bear God's plan and providence. When we look at this in verse 1, he says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that after that which appeared to me at the first. That is a very complex way of saying it was the second vision. Um, we were told in seminary that Hebrew was a simple language and they try to do things simply. And then you read stuff like that and you're like, that's not simple at all. I mean, I think you just made a very uh, easy idea, a little complex. So the second vision, Daniel's talking about the second vision that he's had right after the first one. So we get this, we we know that a ram is going to appear. A ram, you know, you think a very muscular beast, they can be aggressive, they're proud, they're stiff, they're strong. So we can understand that this too would invoke a certain amount of fear because those animals, when let loose, can do real damage. They can, they can bring, they can harm. But by setting, he gives us the note of context. This is in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So remember, we're going back in time because uh, Daniel five and, or Daniel six. Daniel five was the end of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel six started the Darius the Mede, and then of course Cyrus will be next. So the third year. This is about 550 BC. So somewhere in there, we can we can we can argue over maybe it's 551 or 549, but about 550 BC. And so we see this new vision. We see this new vision of this ram with these horns. We already know uh, it's going to be Medes and Persians. But remember now, where is Daniel when he has this vision? He's in Babylon. This is the third year of Belshazzar. This is the third year of the king who he said, you've been weighed, you've been measured and found wanting and your, your very life will be claimed from you. So in the 3rd year of Belshazzar Daniel sees a vision that he later finds out is of Persia, the rise of per- ultimately per- Persia. Now, we run into an issue. He says, "And I saw in the vision when I saw, I was in Susa, Susa the citadel." And stop right there. A lot of people will say, "Well, you've you've got a mistake right here. This is either it's misdated or Daniel just makes a mistake." Why? Why, Brad? Why would he make a mistake? because Susa is not a Babylonian citadel, it's a Persian one. And so I actually read a commentator this past week who just said, well, Daniel just made a huge mistake here, we just have to pass over it and just accept, you know, he made a mistake, but the rest of the stuff he said is, is okay. And it's like, wait a second, how do you know it's okay if you know he made a mistake right here? Let me, let me read this to you again. I saw in the vision, and when I saw I was in Susa. You know, what he's telling you in the vision he was in Susa. He's not there right now. He's in Babylon. He's seeing his vision. He's saying, "When I was in, when I saw the vision, I was in Susa." So we can we can uh, let ourselves we can let our guard down a little bit. Daniel did not make a mistake. He's not saying he was literally there. He's saying I was there in the vision, and that's important. That's an important part of the vision. He's in a citadel in Persia in a vision while he's still presently physically in Babylon. It's giving you some insight into what, he, what he's seeing. But this is in Belshazzar's third year. So for the rest of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel knows that God's plan is to raise up Persia. And that's probably going to cost Belshazzar his kingdom. Now, he, 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 he keeps that information. And I, you have to wonder, or we have to realize, why did Daniel not give Belshazzar any hope on the night he saw the vision. You know why? Because he knew he had none. Isn't that crazy? He, he knows, he's, he's talking to this king, he says, yes, you've been weighed, and you've been found wanting, and I've seen it with my own eyes. So that's why Belshazzar didn't get the same treatment that Nebuchadnezzar did, because Belshazzar's time was up. Daniel had seen it in the third year of his reign. But when we see this, but, when, when we understand that Daniel is privy to this vision, he's privy to this information, what should it do for us? Well, as strange as it may sound, this should be a, a comforting truth for us, that this comforting truth that God ordains human history, that God had a plan. God had a plan for what he was going to do with Babylon. God had a plan for what he would do with Persia. God had a plan for what he would do with Greece. God had a plan for what he would do with Rome and all the empires that came after that. God has a plan for what he's going to do with us. He's got a plan for what he's going to do with America. That God has a plan, and and despite the the suffering and the hardship, we're not alone. That God is working. Daniel just screams out to us, in human history, God is working. So stand firm. Be of good cheer. Have hope. Don't despair. Don't Don't embrace a life of purposelessness. You have purpose. Because the God of purpose is with you. Beloved, you may say, Brad, then why do we have to suffer so much? I don't know. I wish I knew the answer to that. That's the million dollar question. But you know what I'm learning? I'm learning through walking with other people in their suffering and walking through my own. One of the primary lessons I'm learning is it is in those seasons of suffering where God is shepherding our souls back to something bigger than ourselves. It is in my own seasons of suffering where I'm being reminded that my soul is being shepherded towards something that is bigger than Brad, that is bigger than Brad's ease, that is bigger than Brad's comfort, that is even bigger than Brad's what he thinks he desires. And so I don't know why suffering, I do know what it can do. It can shepherd us back to the one who has control over all things. It's interesting, he says... He was in Susa, and I raised my eyes, and behold, in verse 3, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. The Hebrew word there for ram can also mean the word ruler. So you have a little double entendre going on, and I do think it's purposeful. Um, it means ram, and it often means, and it will always mean ram, but it can also mean ruler. And so I think that it kind of got a little play on words there. What is a ram? It's a strong, proud animal. What does a ruler tend to be? Strong and proud. Uh, a ram kind of boasts in itself. It stands upright. It makes you notice it's there. It snorts. These kind of all these all these qualities that rulers in Daniel's day would have possessed. That kind of bravado to make to to showcase their own strength. So we have this right here, and it says it's got high horns. And it, by by noting that they're high, he's noting the strength of this animal. This animal is it's got these huge horns, which make it a killing machine, a goring machine. It can do great damage. The horns, of course, we understand are symbols of strength, but they tell us exactly what the horns are, Media and Persia, two kingdoms that rise up after Babylon. And Persia is the one that kind of enfolds Media, so it's the last great horn, the stronger one. So Daniel is telling you exactly what would happen But it says here, it says, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. This is in verse 4. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. That became the implication of became great is arrogant. So it it doesn't mean that he became a great nation as if it's a compliment. It's the idea there is arrogance. But look, so he's charging. He's strong, and he's unstoppable. Just so you know, Persia was a kingdom and empire that lasted about 200 years, and I can imagine during those two centuries, it probably seemed unstoppable. I think some of us are probably familiar with some history, but most of us are familiar at least with the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Greeks tried to hold off the Persian army, and the Persian army was so big, I mean, there was no hope that any Greek army was going to hold it off. That's why Persia kind of swept through the known world, more or less because at, the, at its height, it was a killing machine. It was an empire. Nothing could stop it. And so it makes sense to me that Daniel describes this ram who's going to be Persia as unstoppable, strong, dominant. No one could deliver. And when we read that, when it says, no one could deliver from its hand beloved, this is how, how do we apply that in our own time? Do you live in a world where sometimes it feels like the world is an unstoppable force and nothing can deliver us from its hand? I do. Sometimes it just feels like it's inevitable that the world wins, even though I know the truth of Scripture, because the world functions like a destroying machine. Why do we, uh, Why are we told and warned so much, especially in the book of 1 John, against the world and its system? Because it consumes, it kills, it destroys And it does so mercilessly. So what Daniel is looking at is a very common experience even to you and to me. We're not having to deal with Persia. We are having to deal with the world, that system that has arrayed itself against God. When we think about these nation-states or these nations, these empires, what are they? Well, they're, they're arrogant. What did they normally do? What was their center of worship? Normally it was the emperor or the person leading Xerxes thought of himself as a divine, as a divine being, a, a god in the flesh, and that's inevitable when it comes to world systems. Either we're going to serve the god of the Bible, or we're going to make a god that is usually in some way, shape, or form ourselves, and we see this played out through human history. And That's exactly what Persia did. They did as they pleased, they lived as they pleased. Daniel is watching all this unfold. And can you imagine how hard that must be to say, hey, guess what? You've been in captivity for seven years. Guess who the next big thing on the block is? They're going to come and about 200 years of that. Oh, and then another one's going to come. In this chapter, it's, it's a goat. We'll get there next week. And then another one's going to come. Oh, and by the way, there's a whole system arrayed against you that we're going to deal with until one like a son of man comes and gives you deliverance and redemption beloved it's hard that's a hard that's a hard providence that's a hard reality but the hope in it is the one like a son of man who has come his name is jesus So Daniel lays out those first four verses. What is the vision? This is it. He sees the ram. He sees the ram charging westward, northward, southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one could deliver from his power or literally deliver from his hand is what it says in the Hebrew. He did as he pleased. He was arrogant. So he's describing the system. So now he kind of transitions down into the the latter half of the passage from 15 to 20 to talk about what what it means. So Daniel, we've said he's, Daniel wants to understand it. And what do we have here? Well, we have God's grace and the fact that God makes it, under, he makes it understood. He helps Daniel to understand this vision that's now before him. So as he's describing, he, hears, he says, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel. Make this one understand the vision. So an angel is right here. Daniel sees an angel in the vision, Gabriel. Interestingly enough, Gabriel's name means either man or warrior of God. He would be what's called one of the archangels in the Old Testament. His name should be familiar to us because he's the very angel that we are confronted with in the New Testament who announces the birth of Jesus to Mary. And so when you see Gabriel in the Bible, he is bringing God's word to bear. He is this warrior of God who comes to bring God's truth to God's people. And so he's going to bring understanding to Daniel just like he would later, you know, 600-ish years later, bring understanding to Mary. It's a powerful picture that we have in Scripture, that this angel is, is a, a picture of God's grace. Why? How, why would we say that? Well, as a, as, as a person or as a creature that reveals the Word of God, we are seeing God's grace in action. He's bringing revelation to God's man so that God's man can encourage God's people to say, yes, it's hard, yes, it's tough, yes, Persia is coming, but God is reigning. And yes, Greece will come after Persia, and God is reigning. And Rome will come after Greece, and God is reigning. Beloved, those are the things, this is the beauty of grace. What does he do? He's revealing God's truth so that every level of our lives we know how to live before the Lord. And it doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right. And it doesn't mean we're never going to struggle with despair. It just means that when we do it imperfectly, we have a pathway of repentance. When we don't do it right, we have grace and restoration. And when we do give into dis- despair, we can turn in joy to Christ. And we have to. Beloved, the world wants you to despair. You know what despairing people do? They give up. They give up. They stop. They quit. And the world, I'm telling you, it wants you to be there. It wants you to get to that place. It wants to overwhelm you with visions of doom and gloom and how out of step you are with reality so that you will give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because in Christ, you have truth. In Christ, you have life. In Christ, you have hope. In Christ, you have purpose. And no matter how many times the world will feed us lies, it does not change the truth. Truth is what Daniel is trying to proclaim here. Human history, God's intervention. That is the paradigm of the visions of Daniel. Here's human history, here's God's intervention. Here's human history, here's God's intervention. That's that's the basic paradigm that we're following. When we think about Gabriel making this known, bringing understanding to Daniel, we've we've called it revelation. We've said so that we can know how to live at every level. So why are we word people? Why Why do we base our lives on the word of God? Well, we understand the word teaches us how to relate to others, right? The word teaches us how to have relationships. What else does the word teach us? Well, the Word teaches us how to live in exile. What is Daniel a manual for? Daniel is a manual for living in exile. How do we live in exile? For the glory of God. How do we live in exile? Speaking the truth of God. How do we live in exile? Not giving up on the hope of God. So it teaches us how to live in exile. You know what else it teaches us? The Word of God teaches us how to love God. God. It teaches us how to love our neighbor. Those two essential commandments that Jesus says are the two greatest commandments, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Where do we learn how to do that? From the word of God. And so Daniel is privy to this word. He's privy to this interpretation. He's privy to this vision for two reasons. He can warn, he can warn people and so that he can encourage. Yes, the warning is necessary, but the encouragement is just as important. So he can encourage people not to despair. When Daniel sees Gabriel, he said, so he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. He was frightened by the appearance, the appearance of this creature, I can only imagine one who stands in the presence of God and reflects the glory and majesty of God would be a fearful creature to look at. We might all have the same, let me rephrase that, we would all have the same response. We would be frightened. Mary was frightened when she heard Gabriel's message. So there's, there's a common theme here. Daniel was frightened at the sight of him. Now it says that he fell on his face, He fell on his face before this creature. The idea there is not in worship. It doesn't imply worship. It just means he fell down in awe and terror. You know why? Because he was aware of his majesty. He was aware of the majesty of this creature, and it was awe-inspiring. Now, in Revelation, John fell down to worship, and the angel had to say, Nope, get up. You don't worship me. So Daniel is down. He's face down. And Gabriel begins to speak to him he says, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And he mentions that again. He says, for it refers to the appointed time of the end in verse 19. Now, what we want to be clear on here is not, Gabriel is not talking to Daniel about the end of the world as it stands. What he's talking about, these are visions for the end of each kingdom. So the reason he says for the time of the end is because what we didn't read, he says as in verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had conspic- uh, cons- a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he goes on to talk about the fight between the ram and the goat. And so he's reminding us here, what is he saying about the end? Kingdoms come to an end. Persia will come to an end. Greece will come to an end. The kingdom of God is forever. The kingdom of God is eternal. So he's saying that the end of these kingdoms are coming, and eventually, of course, the end of the world. But look, at when he talks about here, he says, and so he came near to where I stood. I was frightened. I fell on my face. And then he talks about, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. That is a very interesting theological. I want to make note of this. In Genesis 2... When God makes Eve from Adam's rib, Adam was in a deep sleep. Same word. When Abraham, in Genesis 15, has a vision of the pot and the torch going between the sacrifices, do you remember? Abraham is in a deep sleep. Same word. So you have this idea that you've got, so Adam, Abraham, and now Daniel, all in this kind of deep trance-like sleep, trance-like sleep, at a crucial moment when God is doing something vital in their midst. Now, there are a few things I think we can take away from this. One is at their most helpless point, God is working. So Abraham is, is, is asleep. He's helpless. He, can't, he and uh, Sarah can't seem to have children. God says, you're going to have a nation. Adam can't make Eve by himself. God, he's in a deep sleep. God makes Eve the complement to what Adam needed. Daniel is looking at this vision overwhelmed in a deep sleep, and God is the one who gives him the knowledge and the truth that he needs for revelation. So whatever else this theology of sleep is communicating, one thing it says to us is that in our weakness, God works. In our helplessness, God works. When we are asleep, God is working. And so I love the truth of that. And then you see the power of God at work, and Gabriel, Daniel, is asleep, and Gabriel, it, the Hebrew says it touches him, and he is upright. He's up. He's on his feet. He's not in sleep anymore. God, God puts him down. God raises him up. I love the message in that. God's power through the angel raises Daniel up. God empowers Daniel to now receive and understand. And he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, what refers to the appointed time of the end. I love this, I make known. I make known. Of course, that's the angel speaking on behalf of God, but you know what he's saying? I, Yahweh, I, Yahweh, I write history. I am the one who makes history, not kings, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar, not Darius, not Cyrus, not Xerxes, not Alexander the Great, not Antiochus, not Julius Caesar, I, Yahweh, am the one who writes human history. And beloved, that should be an encouraging key truth for us because we are living in God's kingdom, under God's banner, in God's will. What does he mention here briefly, the end of the indignation or the end of wrath? Uh, he's getting at what awaits those who rebel against God. Why would Persia experience the indignation? They rebelled against God. Why would Greece? They rebelled against God, and so forth and so on. And then this last one in this paragraph that we looked at, he says, as for the ram, very kind of just plain and simple, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So he's looking clearly at a nation that is rising up. Now remember, I want, I want, I want you to keep this in context. This is in 550 B.C. This is before Persia comes to Babylon. Daniel knows exactly what's coming down the pike. He knows that media, that Persia, is essentially going to enfold media and they're going to be the nation. They will come by God's directive and they will be dispatched by God's directive. In all things, God reigns. That's the truth and beauty of Daniel. Beloved, I mentioned a lot about pain and suffering. And I've dealt with this before. It bears repeating the old cliche. Tolkien was such a, a master of bringing this out in his writings. I'm not going to give a specific example. He was such a master at bringing this out. In his, I mean, one of the goals of his writings is, is to seal in our minds and hearts time doesn't heal all wounds. It doesn't. Time just doesn't heal all wounds. There's no time. Through time, we can get better. But, you know, I me mean, share a story with you. When I was in high school... A friend of mine died of cancer. He was 16. Uh, His mother, pretty much almost every year, so he was, we're talking about 30 years ago. Well, 29. 29 years ago, his mother still reaches out to me every so often on my birthday. His name was Kenyon. You know, Kenyon would be 40, 40 this year. Kenyon, this year when she reached out to me, Kenyon would be 45 this year. And do you know in 30 years, she tells me that she still feels the pain of his death. Now, she's gotten over it. She's a strong believer in the Lord, but she still hurts. You know why? Because time is never going to heal that wound. Time is never going to heal that wound. There's one hope for healing of wounds that run that deeply, and it's the gospel. It's the hope that God gives us. Beloved, when you think about the things that wound us, we're wounded by the sins of others. You and I have been wounded by the sins of others. We've been slandered. We've been gossiped. We've been attacked. All sorts of things. We've been wounded by disease and the ripple effect. Some of you have dealt with cancer and had loved ones who've died from cancer. I have. We've been wounded by that. Or I just had a buried a cousin who, who died from complications with with COVID. I mean, we get wounded deeply. These things. And there's no amount of time that's ever going to heal those wounds. Because so many of those wounds just run too deeply. They get too deep into who we are. And so it's not as if 10 years and then the wound's over and then there's no more hurt. Now you may think that's terrible news. It's actually good news. Because time is not God. Time cannot give hope and peace and time cannot give gospel. There's one place where wounds get healed. And it's not going to be in the slow march of time. We're not going to wait out evil in our world. We go for redemption and healing to Jesus. We understand that as long as we are in this world, we are going to get wounded, and sometimes deeply. And our only hope in the face of that wounding is the truth that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that he loves us more deeply than we can imagine, that he has sacrificed more than we can fathom, and that he does not leave or forsake us. So let me give you the hope that is the only hope in the world. Daniel saw kingdoms rise and fall. He saw pain and hardship. But the truth of the matter is, is amidst all that, amid all that, there is a God who says, I love you enough that I'm, I gave my son for you so that in him you might come to me. And we have relationship. And that love is a banner over you. And you will never be forsaken. You will never be left. And even in your most painful moments, you will know I am walking with you. That is the hope that Daniel wants to give us. And that's the hope we need to cling to. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. The rich beauty of it, the simplicity of it, the complexity of it. Thank you for just the way you communicate to your people in clear terms and word, and hope, and truth. God, be with us, I pray. Help us to live out these things, and not just speak them, not just hear them, and not just tell ourselves, oh, this is cool, it's a cool vision, but God, to have these things pierced to the very depths of who we are in our hearts. Thank you that you've given us that mercy, and I pray that your mercy would continue to follow us throughout all our days, and help us to be more like Jesus. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.